Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed epiphany season to everybody this Friday, February the 4th, as God, God's light in Christ shines on us from Matthew chapter 14. The verses we had right before this were not uh, a real light, uh, joyous time as we hear about John the Baptist, the one who called people to repentance and also pointed away from himself to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was actually kind of a tough text to study, but today it brings us back to Sunday school as we see Jesus feeds the 5,000. This is one of those that we easily can look at that, read it quick, go to the walking of Jesus, go to something maybe that we haven't read before, and we overlook the jewels and the riches that are there in these wonderful verses. So today we'll slow down. As we've said, we're going through Matthew all the way to Easter. So hold on tight, slowly going through these verses as we once again see Christ. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Joining us to be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome back Pastor Bob Hiller of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido in San Marcos, California. Pastor Hiller, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thanks for having me back, Brady. Yeah, we, you know, this is probably, uh, well, we're pretty close to the last time we've been on. So I, I don't know if I need to ask this, but anything new for you, your family, and the saints at Community Lutheran? No, we're just, uh, uh, since last week when I was on, everything pretty much has been the same. Uh, <laughs> last time. Uh, I do want to, if I can plug something, a project I'm involved with, if, if that's okay. Please do. Uh, by you. Um I got a couple irons in the fire right now, but uh, one of them is if, if uh, anybody on the station listens to the White Horse Inn, mm. um, which I believe uh, is actually on KFU on Saturdays, uh, Saturday mornings, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm going to be joining that cast and, and working with those gentlemen over there at the White Horse Inn. And so, so I encourage everybody to, to give that a listen. I think uh, pretty soon we're going to start airing a few episodes where we work through the Book of Hebrews. Uh, so that might be a lot of fun for your listeners to check out. So I just thought I'd plug that and also let folks know that if they got a pastor out there who needs some help with uh, preaching, uh, or if you are a pastor who's looking for some help with preaching, please check out Craft of Preaching at 1517.org. Uh, that's a project I'm involved with there, and we got a lot of great uh, preaching uh, resources for your for your listeners over there. So if I could just do some shameless plugs, I appreciate that. And and you did it well. You did it well. I'll. I'll say this, White Horse Inn is on KFUO Saturdays from 11 to noon, if my sources are correct. If there's anybody out there that's like, yeah, that's not right, um, let me know. But it, as far as what I'm reading here, it says White Horse Inn is from 11 until noon. And, and I speak quite often on this program about how KFUO, what used to be the Bible study, was a very formative time for me when I was during seminary. And also another one of those was White Horse Inn which I believe at that time when, when Pastor Hiller and I were in seminary, it was on Saturday nights, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I the think that's right. White Horse I Inn was correct. in. And it was very formative to me because my wife and I were janitors at Concordia Lutheran Church in Maplewood, Missouri, and I would turn on KFUO and White Horse Inn would be on, which has been a Lutheran guy, a Reformed guy, um, a, a evangelical guy, a, 
it was uh, at that time it was uh, two Reformed guys, Reformed Baptist guy, and, and uh, Lutheran. Gotcha. So, so that was very formative to be able to um, iron sharpen iron and make sure we're distinct in our theology at the same time, thanking God for where we're united. So, yes, that is a very important thing that is also on KFUO. So, Pastor, as we are here to be in the Word of God, um, as we search the Scriptures this morning, can you begin our time in prayer? Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks once again uh, for the gift of your Word, wherein we see your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come to live and die and rise for our salvation. Lord, as we study this Word today, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit so that we would hear the Word in faith and we would learn to trust it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have any questions concerning our study this morning on uh, Matthew chapter 14, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. Pastor, when we look at this text, um, what I'm going to do is just read the, read the true story again. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. When I went to camp as a kid, Lutheran Island camp here in Minnesota, I remember we read a portion of the Bible. One of them was David and Goliath. And then I think the next day, it was Jesus feeds the 5,000. And I don't know the purpose of how those were connected. doesn't matter. But I do remember asking this question, and, and I have referenced this before in the program, is we read it, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I was in fifth grade. And I remember I asked my counselor, I said, did that really happen? And they kind of knew who I was. Like, isn't he a pastor's kid? What's up with this kid, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and he said, yeah. Yeah, the whole Bible is true. Like, oh, really? It all happened? Yeah. Like, wow. Oh, boy. Um, so it's just a, you know, it's a reminder for us when we read this, it is truth. It did happen. And it is something that, therefore, um, shows us Christ and his grace then and shows Christ and his grace today. So may that be our filter this morning. Pastor, you probably were more enlightened in fifth grade than I was. What do you think? No, I was, uh, I was what you would call a, uh, a raging uh, liberal Bible scholar in which I thought that in this story, <laughs> Jesus had hidden bread and fish under a rock. Uh, <laughs> you know what's fascinating about that is when you read uh, some of the old liberal Bible scholarship, this is one of those things they just don't know what to do with. So they, they used to have like standards trying to figure out which parts were historically accurate and which parts weren't, obviously coming from a place of unbelief. Right, right. And one of the standards by which they would say this is very likely it happened is if does does the account occur in all four Gospels? Well, this one does. It yeah. shows up in all four, and yet it's one of the most uh, sort of shocking miracles to feed thousands upon thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. It boggles the mind. And so they would say, what I, what I just referenced there, they would say, well— yeah, the account happened, but it was only because they had a cave in the back with a, like a like a refrigerator, <laughs> right. refrigerator. But you know, a storage of, of fish and bread that they were able to feed the people with. Like they could not let Jesus perform a miracle; they just couldn't let it happen. Um, so praise God for uh, uh, good Bible uh, camp counselors yeah. who pointed you to the truth that you know Jesus actually pulled this off, and it says something very significant uh, about who he is and what he's come to do. And also, I want to remind our listeners, if you have a Lutheran study Bible, one of the great visuals that you'll be able to have is on page 1596, 1596, and it shows the miracles of Jesus. And besides the resurrection, besides the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four accounts. 
of the Gospels. And that's very visual. It shows us that exactly what Pastor Haler just referenced is the feeding of the 5,000 that happened. It happens in each one of the Gospels, which once again affirms that it's not word for word or else they'd be copying it, but it definitely affirms that what happened was witnessed by many people. So we just a reminder, this was it. We believe this to be true, <laughs> and it does show us the grace of God in our lives even today. So we're going to read all the verses, 13 through 21, from the English Standard Version, chapter 14, beginning of the 13th verse. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. We give them some, You give them something to eat. Then they said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. When he, when he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is our, the word of our Lord this morning. Pastor, what are your first thoughts as you once again hear this story that we would have learned in Sunday school, camp, and everything else? Uh, what are your first thoughts? It, you know, it, it's one of those really surprising uh, accounts of Jesus. I know, I know we've heard it a thousand times, but if you're just hearing this for the first time, I think your camp response is not that far-fetched. Like, did that, did that really just happen? And I wonder if the disciples weren't thinking some of the same things. Did that really just happen? Uh, just a remarkable, remarkable passage. One of the things I find really fascinating about it uh, is the context uh, in which this takes place. So in verse 13, it says, Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. Now, you, you referenced this at the beginning, but this, when it says he heard this, uh, he heard about the death of his cousin. He heard about the, the beheading of John the Baptist. Um, and in fact, in every in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just before we have the recording of this miracle, a reference is made to uh, the beheading of, of the baptizer by Herod. Uh, in, in John's Gospel, the difference is um, that it's the Pharisees kind of debating with Jesus about himself. But but in all accounts, uh, all of this account always takes place based around a question: Who is this Jesus? So it kind of starts off like this. Herod thought that Jesus, he'd heard about Jesus, and he thought maybe this was John the Baptist who he'd raised, who had been raised from the dead after he had killed him. And then it kind of gives the account of the beheading of the Baptist, and then you come to Jesus. And what you really see taking place here, I think, is significant. Uh, you are getting the contrast of Jesus with Herod, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What is different from the king that the people have right now, this sort of pseudo-Jewish king in, in, in Herod, and how is Jesus different from that king? I actually think this is very pronounced if, we, if we're allowed to do this and kind of bring in Mark's account here. Uh, in Mark's account, just after we hear about uh, Herod beheading John, uh, 
we see Jesus go off to be by himself to, to kind of contemplate these things. We're reminded of the beautiful psalm, Precious in the Sight of the Lord is the Death of His Saints. Uh, this is this is the death of one of the great saints we have in the entire scriptures, John the Baptizer. Yeah. And Jesus goes off very likely, as he does at times, to, to mourn over this, to weep over death, to, to uh, really contemplate the fact that here he's come to, to gather his, his chicks beneath his wing, as it were, uh, and they would not come. Instead, they abuse the prophets. They kill the prophets. You know, and so Jesus is thinking about all of these things. But then the crowds come to him, and in Mark's gospel it says, and he looked at them and had compassion, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. But if you're living in Jesus's days, when you hear that language, sheep without a shepherd, you immediately go to the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, you are reminded by God uh, how angry he is at the shepherds of his people. And in the Old Testament, shepherd represents a king. The shepherd was a way of speaking of the king. After all, the first, great, the second king, but the greatest king really in Israel's history is David, who was a shepherd. Uh, and the shepherds have been abusing the sheep. They've been getting fat off of the sheep, and God is furious. And he says, I'm going to un- go and be done with these shepherds, and I myself will come, and I will shepherd my people. I'm going to replace this with a better shepherd, so much better, in fact, that it's going to be me. So now you have, here in Matthew and Mark especially, also kind of not as pronounced, but also in Luke, here you have the, the, the pseudo-king of the Jews in Herod, abusing the prophets, harming the people, getting in the way of the Word of God, contrasted with the, the shepherd that the Father has sent. Here is Jesus showing up to be a good shepherd for his people. So after he hears this, he goes off by himself uh, to pray. But when the crowds are there, they follow him. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he has compassion on them. What is the difference between King Herod, the kings of this world, uh, and Jesus, Jesus sees people in their suffering, and he has compassion. The compassion of Jesus is just saturating this, this incredible account. Uh, and this is the nature of our king. Uh, he is a shepherd who has compassion for his sheep. Our common line that we've gone through with Matthew, and you really hit it on the head, is Christ's reign has come, Christ's reign is here, Christ's reign is coming. You can replace reign with kingdom, uh, if you will. And so we're constantly seeing how this king operates differently than the rest of the other kings. And, you know, to even go, by the time we get done with this, I almost have to go through the whole thing to show this is the kind of king that has been revealed as we've um, gone through Matthew. But this is another example. Verse chapter 14, we see King Herod that basically he makes a, a... Horrible promise. I mean, he doesn't promise to seek and to save the lost. No. He makes a promise that whatever you want, I'll give to you. And all of a sudden, we're going to be John the Baptist. And he's like, oh, shoot, I don't want to look like a fool. Therefore, I'll do it. I mean, just think about the line of reasoning. What a horrible... If he's going to like change his mind for that one, what kind of king is he? Like you said, kind of a... Yeah. Not a real king. And here, and, and reminder, the Mark account for our listeners is Mark 6, 30 through 44. The reference that Pastor Hiller had of Ezekiel is a famous passage about shepherds in Ezekiel 34. I'm assuming that's what you're referencing, Pastor? Yes, that's yep. right. That's the one, yes. yes. That, that, that they're feeding themselves and not feeding the sheep. And so you see that all lay out beautifully, that ding, 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 ding. Not only is he a shepherd, but he is, like you said, they connected that to the king. 
and now we see this king that the Magi came to worship. We see him at yeah. work yes. better than any king that they would have worshipped at that time. So, it, it, and this is a, this is exciting stuff, Pastor. Anything else before we really go slowly through the text? Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. So this is a great point. And you think about this too. We, we, when I talked to you last week, we were talking about the parables, and the parables are demonstrating uh, sort of the response that the people are having to the the. the present and active reign of God in their midst. Uh, but when you look to Jesus himself, if you look at the crowd, but when you just look at Christ, this is the nature of his reign. It is one of compassion. Even in the midst of, of his word being assaulted, he continues to have compassion on his people. Um, and I, I don't think we can overemphasize that, that compassionate nature of our Lord uh, enough. And especially when we realize how much, because we can look at kings all day or leaders and say, well, they're not very compassionate. But if we really do any soul searching, the lack of compassion that we tend to have with people. And that's why this um, true story in scripture reminds us that if we're going to, if we're going to start becoming um, compassion inspectors, then we're all going to fail which is why we need to read this and to see the compassion our Lord had on them and what he has Mm -hmm. on us. So uh, I'm ready to dig in, Pastor. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, as Pastor referenced about John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Now, Pastor, verse verse 13, I want to make sure we at least address it. You you did mention it before, that he goes to be by himself to a desolate place. Any reflections on that? Um, We hear a little more in Mark 6, but any reflections? Because I think that's important to lay out before we get to the rest of our text. Any thoughts? Yeah, I don't know how much we can read into this. Um, One of the things that we're going to talk about in a moment is, when we talk about the compassion that the Lord has uh, there, you get sort of the the internal feelings of of the Lord Jesus. It's hard to say, like he goes off by himself after hearing about John uh, exactly what he's feeling, but I think we can make some assumptions. I mean, this is his cousin, right? Uh, Jesus is fully human and fully God. It's not like John's beheaded. And then the Lord says, well, this is all going according to plan, and I have no emotional attachment to it whatsoever. I mean, I, I think here we see the emotion of our Lord and the humanity of our Lord. Sometimes you just want to be by yourself, you know? I think of Job. When everything falls apart for Job, the best thing he has with his friends around him is that they're weeping with him. But then they start talking, and he just needs them to go away. <laughs> he just needs to be by himself for a little bit. And that's, and that's an okay thing. Um, the Lord is... Uh, his again, his heart is breaking. I would say here uh, over the death of his cousin. Uh, did the Lord know what happened? Well, sure, I suppose. But the death of John is a reflection of just how wicked this world is. The death of John is one on a personal level for the Lord. The death of his cousin—that's always painful. Two, it's a symbol of the fact that the kings of this world will have <laughs> will much prefer their power and their reputation to the truth, to the preaching of the word. Uh, and so when we see the king of God's people, Herod, uh, 
silencing the word, literally, uh, by taking the head off of John, um, we see the nature of the rebellion of humanity. And, and so for this, I think the Lord just needs to go and pray. I mean, he just needs to go and, and the Lord needs to speak to the Father and just, just I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, process through this, because this is a gut-wrenching moment uh, for him personally, uh, theologically. Uh, it's a very sad scene. And so we see the Lord, um, again, embodying the great psalm, uh, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Um, but how the Lord is not unaffected by it, as it were. And like you said, that shows that Jesus is God and man, that he felt what we felt. This is Hebrews language, so that he can he can relate with us when we yeah. are going through this. Um, we see this in John. Uh, we hear of Lazarus dying. Jesus wept. So he, he definitely was not one who was on the side. Like he said, oh, like he's, I have no emotional attachment. I love that. Like, well, obviously that's not true. And also, it, it shows me this in verse 14, that if I, and this shows the weakness of, of you and me, or all of us, you are listeners, is if I need to go by myself, I go by myself. And if I have a group of people show up, the last thing I have on them is compassion. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Right. It's like I this do not. A, you know? This is a straight. This is a straight text about his divinity because none of us are gonna have that feeling. No, that's great. Yeah. So it is. It is a is a wonderful reality of that, and we we've had a lot of literature, um, uh, a lot of our theology of mercy literature that has mm. come through the LCMS over the last uh, two decades, really, about this word compassion. And mm. splachna is kind of that Greek Greek word that just shows us that this is a feeling deep within our guts. So, Pastor, any any thoughts on that? We've had a lot of talk about that over the years, but it's in a very important understanding of our Lord being compassionate. Any thoughts you have? Yeah, I uh, now I'm stealing some of this from uh, our dear Doctor Jeffrey Gibbs and uh, mm. his his marvelous commentary on on the Gospel of Matthew. And, and much of what I'll say today, I'm sure I'm, I'm taking from that. Um, but he points out that it is a rare instance where we actually have insight into the emotional uh, life of Jesus, or probably better said, the inner life of Jesus. Generally, his character is demonstrated by his deeds, by what he does. So, for example, in this text, let's say we remove the line about his compassion. Uh, we could say something like this. He went to be by himself, and then he saw the crowds, and he began to heal them. Now, we could read into that text and say, well, clearly he has compassion on them. Um, or we might be able to read a lot of other things into the text. Who knows? But here is one of those really rare moments, and, it, and it's rare with this word specifically, in which we see what the Lord is actually feeling. Uh, we, we, we have an insight into his heart. Uh, and isn't it, isn't it fascinating that it, it's so often that when we have an insight into the feelings of the Lord, they are feelings of compassion. They are feelings of mercy. His, I think splankna is, if I remember this correctly, the Greek word basically for uh, the guts. Mm -hmm. in, our way, in our way of speaking, we might think of the heart. If you have compassion, you say, my heart goes out to that person. Uh, that's the idea here. Uh, but when Christ's heart goes out to his person, when his when his uh, when his guts go out to that person, that's why yeah. I have to 
greatest way of saying it, but I mean, it's, it's heart wrenching for him. It's gut wrenching for him. But when the Lord has that feeling, he doesn't just wallow in it and say, I wish there's something I could do. This is, this is the Lord of heaven and earth by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made. And so in his compassion, he looks at the very people he loves and the need that they have. And he does for them what a good king should do for his people. He provides, he gives, he, he, he heals uh, them. They come to him with all kinds of diseases, the text says. And he just, he is so sick of the effects of sin on the creation. He, he just undoes them. He heals these people. He, he sets them free. Um, and what a, great, what a great picture we have here, actually, of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and, and that feeling that you and I have, you know, when we're facing disease, and you, you know as a pastor, you have people who are in the hospital with, with cancer. Uh, COVID has just been a nightmare for everybody, uh, as obviously goes without saying, any number of diseases. And we sit there and we go, boy, I just, I hate this thing. I wish it would just go away. And then I'm sure we have all of our little pious, well, the Lord gives and he takes away and we take this from the Lord, you know, and, and, and that's all well and good, and there's some truth to it. But at the end of the day, we just, we want it to be gone. We want it to be done. And nobody wants that more than the Lord. And that's why he's showing up to have compassion, to promise us the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, to promise us that day when there is no more death or sorrow or pain uh, or suffering. Um, now, we've got to go through the cross to get there. Uh, but Weeping carries for the night, and joy does come in the morning. And so though we see the death of John, and we see the silencing of uh, the Word of God, uh, none of this prevents Christ from being faithful to his saints. None of it stops him from showing compassion and uh, having mercy. And for you, uh, dear listener, and for, for you, Pastor Finneran, and for myself, this is the great hope that we have, that this is the compassion that will raise us from the dead one day and bring us into the presence of our Lord forever. In, in many ways, or in, in direct looking at Scripture way, you go to Micah chapter 7, and this was a great insight I read recently about how this is a fulfillment of what was prophesied in Micah chapter 7. Wait for God, the God of salvation. And it says, uh, verse 18 and 19 of Micah chapter 7, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression mm. for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but his delights, he delights in steadfast love and says this, he will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's wonderful language that there had to have been someone that when they read this text for sure, maybe Matthew, when he's writing this text by the power of the Holy Spirit is like, holy cow, it's coming true. This is real. This, this, I remember this in Micah, or, or kind of like me. Like I remember when they said that this story is actually true. Ding, 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 ding. It all connects, yeah. and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, that we have a God who has compassion on us, and that compassion is shown even greater, not even greater, but also in that iniquity being thrown to the depths of the sea, which means you're not getting them out of there. It's kind of like the Titanic. You're not digging that thing out. That thing's staying. Right. And, uh, and it's yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I know you, you. You go with your thought, and then and then we'll go to a break. Right. What do you got? It just real quickly, we, we often use this phrase, and, and I, I, you know, you speak the truth in love, right? Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, I've heard it recently where you say something like this: "You speak in love, but you must speak the truth, as though the truth is going to be the harsh thing, and the love is going to be the nice thing." Ah. 
But from what you just said, uh, what we read from this text, sometimes the truth is, is, is harsh. But you know what? The truth is love. The truth is that the Lord has compassion. That is what is true. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And his truth is that God has compassion on you. And because his heart goes out to you, you have life in Christ. That is the truth. Uh, what, a, what a delightful reality. And I want to talk more about that reality on the other side of our break. We are studying Matthew chapter 14 with Pastor Bob Hiller, and we'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back. We are studying Matthew chapter 14 with Pastor Bob Hiller of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido and San Marcos, California. Pastor, you just got done saying so beautifully is that this is <laughs> a compassionate God is what we want. I mean, this is the truth that that people are going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is where the, the, the scandal really of forgiveness um, becomes <clears throat> very real for us. And and this compassion points us to wow, the, you know, this is this is what was promised, and it is here now. And for us, we look back and go, not only was it there, but this is still true today. So, verse four, thirteen and fourteen, we don't even, we haven't gotten to the feeding yet. Um, right, so, what right. are your what are your last your thoughts on thirteen fourteen as that really sets the stage for the rest? Any last thoughts before we move on? Yeah, no, this is, this is great. So, so this now sets the stage for us, and we see that Jesus is so compassionate. I guess we could say uh, his compassion is as full as the day is long, because uh, he's been doing this all day long for these people. He shows up on the shore, and he just starts healing. Um, and now uh, what we'll see is it's, it's getting close to night, and these people need a place to go. They need a place to eat. Um, and Jesus has been so busy. Apparently, he's just been so busy having compassion. He hasn't paid any attention to the clock. Uh, <laughs> so his disciples have to call his attention to it. Oh, that's a great segue. That's a great. That's. A, <laughs> he's, I gotta figure out how to put that down. He's so full of compassion that he isn't keeping track of time. That's very good. Okay, yeah, verses right. <laughs> fifteen and sixteen. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said. This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Uh, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this example. When you have the, the road to Timaeus, that Jesus is about to keep going while those two men were going to stop. And they basically say, the day is now over. Um, basically, stay with us. And here, the, the the plea of the disciples is, the day is now over, get away from us. Mm. Which I thought, get away from Jesus, if you will. And it is, yeah. the, the, it's a stark contrast here. So, 
what are the disciples saying and what does Jesus say? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think here we don't want to uh, disparage the disciples too much. In fact, I wonder if we don't see even just a hint of compassion in the disciples, just mm-hmm. compassion um, with a great deal of ignorance uh, of who they're dealing with here. <laughs> you know, healing one person after another, they're like, well, Jesus probably can't handle these guys all night, so we need to send them away. Right. But they're probably thinking to themselves, listen, it's a bit of a hike out here. We've got no food. Uh, uh, we've got no uh, place for the people to sleep. We've got really nothing to provide for them. The, the most, the, the kindest thing we can do for them is now send them away. Say, you know what? Day's over. Come back tomorrow. We'll open up shop early for you. <laughs> you know, whatever we have to do. Uh, but go ahead and send them away, Jesus, because we can't take care of them throughout the night. Uh, the, the problem with the d- disciples is probably not heartlessness. Uh, they're probably, in fact, they're being quite practical mm-hmm. here. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're being very practical here. This is the best thing we can do for them at this point in the day. Uh, the problem with the disciples is not their heartlessness, but in a sense, their, their faithlessness. Uh, they don't, they don't trust Jesus. It's like that time where, where Peter's like, Jesus is on the water and Peter sees him and, and Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter's like, nah, I'm not so sure. Like prove it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, we try and like, make Peter look all faithful here. He didn't trust the word. And the same, you know, he looks at the waves then when he's out on the water and he falls. Why? Because he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Well, it's the same thing here. The disciples are witnessing Jesus perform these incredible miracles. But then they take their eyes off the Lord and they look at, perhaps from a worldly perspective, the reality of what they perceive the situation to be. And they begin to reason not according to uh, perhaps the logic of the kingdom, uh, the logic of abundance, as the Lord is always operating out of abundance, but out of the logic of scarcity. And so they say, listen, there's not enough. We need to send the people someplace else. Um, and so, again, their move is practical, mm-hmm. but they have completely forgotten and, or at least discounted uh, the one who they, are, who they are speaking to. And this is where, like you said, we have to be – well, it's like Monday morning quarterback, right? I mean, you just think, oh, well, yeah. I would never have done that, you know. Um, and, and, and I'm the person that is, is very compassionate, and we kind of get that into our hearts and narcissism and so forth. So you understand that, but we do admit that it is, is misleading to not think that Jesus could feed the crowd. Um, and then so they said, have him go away. There's no way we could do all this. But then Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. How would you? How would you teach that? Because I tend to go to like the real negative, like, "Hey, you know, this is Jesus being sarcastic or whatever it might be." But how would you teach these words of Jesus as he tells them? Well, if if Jesus if Jesus is speaking to faith, what's faith going to do with these words? Faith is going to say, "All right, the Lord said it. I'll do it." Right? It's going to trust that the one who sent is, uh, is reliable, and that it would say, okay, Lord, what next? Um, uh, but unfortunately, uh, Jesus, uh, is, uh, his words, which faith would cling to and obey, we might say, uh, his words here now become straight law. Do something uh, that you can't do. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is the preaching of the law. Be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed this, Lord, 
uh, but I have no perfections in me. How, how, how am I supposed to accomplish such things? Uh, so instead of, uh, like with that command, trusting the one who is perfect on my behalf and clinging to him, instead I try to figure out how I'm going to pull it off. Obviously, I'm going to come up short. I'm going to be uh, without. And so the disciples are in the same boat, uh, so to speak. They're saying, look, you tell me to give them something to eat. I have nothing in my hands to give. Uh, we'll see shortly that they have five loaves of bread and two fish, but I always kind of read that as a joke. Like, yeah, Jesus, okay, we'll feed them all with this, right? Like, there's, you don't know what you're saying, Jesus. We cannot do this. Um, your word is impossible. And if we're thinking of it in terms of the law, it is impossible. It, it is actually impossible for the disciples to feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, but they're not dealing with a God uh, who, or I should say it this way, they are dealing with the God who does the impossible uh, for the sake of his people. And so uh, this now becomes a word in a sense that, that exposes their unbelief. It, it, it exemplifies their, their lack of trust um, so that uh, they're kind of dumbfounded and shocked at what Jesus says. Um, but, the command, but the command stands. Uh, Jesus isn't joking. Uh, and this is one of those things that we always have to remember with the law. When Jesus says something like, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's not just saying, well, I already know you can't do it, so um, I forgive you anyways. Right. What he's saying is, no, I actually expect that of you. He actually expects the disciples to trust him enough uh, to do this. But that's the problem with the law. For a sinner, the expectation is impossible but because the expectation is real. Uh, and so... They don't know what to do with themselves. They've got nothing left, but at least give them this credit. Uh, they do turn back to Jesus. <laughs> they, do, they do push him on it. Um, but at this point, they're exposed for not trusting him enough. It's a call to faith. And, and, and that's, it, it really is that simple. Like it, it's a call to faith. No, you give them something to eat. And this is where we all, it, it's as simple as this. Uh, we're called to faith when our child comes out of the womb, like, oh my, oh my, now it's go time. Like I am now a father and now mm -hmm. I have, you know, Lord help me. And that's, and that's where God calls us to faith. This goes into vocational um, talk about who has God put in front of us. And at the same time, the, uh, he calls us to faith in that the forgiveness of sins is enough. You know, clearly that's pointed out here that, that Jesus is going to uh, bring this kingdom uh, to this this earth that yes there is brokenness here now but there will be a time where there will not need to be five loaves and two fish that that we will have be you know the marriage feast with the lamb so he's calling us to faith in these simple things but these simple things are not something that's easy to have faith in in our world right. because of our sinfulness so right now he's it, calling them to faith and calling us to faith it is interesting that though when the when the law does this work it, it demonstrates the impossibility of the command that uh, the work of the law then is to drive us back to Christ. And I, and I love your illustration or your, your comment about when your children are born. Like, your kids are born, you learn to pray, right? <laughs> and it doesn't stop right when they're born. My, my associate pastor, who's been on your show before, the yep, dear yep. Uh, and right Reverend Matthew Knauss, he his son recently got his driver's license. Um, and dude's praying all the time <laughs> right now, you know? Because you've just got to... When when life comes down on you and the cross is bearing on you or whatever situation you find, 
got yourself in, more and more the Lord says, handle it. And you're like, I cannot handle it. And it drives you to trust him all the more. Uh, there's a there's a great um, scene in um, in the new book uh, that we just uh, released over 1517, The, the Faith Alone by Be- Bo Geertz. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the title of the book, Faith Alone. Um in which they're, they're kind of talking about these, these people during the time of the Reformation, uh, and there's a war going on, and it's a Scandinavian battle taking place, and you got Lutherans and Catholics and, 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 and the Schwerma with the, the Anabaptists, all these people going around. A Schwerma is actually a sandwich. I think I mispronounced it. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> you get all these things going on. And they're talking to this one guy who was formerly a priest and, and remained a priest, but he got married. And they say to him, like, but, you know, doesn't this kind of, kind of ruin your faith like you're not trusting in god he's like listen i never knew what the cross was until i was married i I didn't know what it was to have faith until i had a household and i had to like get to know this other person and and figure out how to work with them and and, and like i've learned to pray and trust god more uh, because of my life circumstance that's that's a wonderful insight Um, um this is this is how this works when you're in the midst of life and Jesus is commanding you to do something, it exposes your dependence on Christ for everything. Mm. Uh, it, it drives you back, really, uh, uh, to the first article of the creed, right? Uh, I believe that God has made me and all creatures and given me a house and home and eyes and ears and mouth and tongue and all my members and all my family members and all this. And for all this, it's my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. But that thanking and praising and serving and obeying it becomes overwhelming and burdensome, and you realize, if I'm going to handle God's gifts well, I need God to give me the ability to do it. And so it always drives us back uh, drives us back to the Lord for the help that we need. So let's see how the, as it really, I mean, at this point, they would have been driven back to the Lord, and we kind of see that unfold here in the next few verses. 17 through 19, they, the disciples, said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. I'm going to stop there. Probably, Should I stop there? I'm going to stop there. Just, Just to set the tone here a little bit, to know what we have. One of the tendencies I've seen with this is they had five loaves, they have two fish, and God used it. What do you have that God can use? Which I think is maybe a little bit too, uh, maybe not using the text for what it is. How can we look at this portion of these verses, of this of this story, and make sure we look at it faithfully? Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm not sure that's a real... Um faithful application of the text because what you end up doing when you when you say it that way is um, are you trusting God enough to accomplish miraculous things with just the little that you have and then you become self-condemning because you're not trusting him with the little that you have and uh, I, I just don't think that's the point at all uh, the Lord has not come to you or I and said okay five loaves and two fish, you figure it out. But what he has come to you is that is, uh, on your father and mother, don't misuse the name of the Lord. You know, he's given you pretty clear commandments. Uh, um, uh, and what you realize is that on your own, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot do those things. 
you do need help. Uh, the Lord has placed things in your hand, uh, but we do need his help to, to handle that. Uh, so I don't think that's really the right application of no. the text. Um, but what it does demonstrate is the scarcity of what is there and what the Lord is about to do with the scarcity. Um, and I, I do love this, going back to that idea that he is our shepherd. Notice what he does with the people. What does he do? He has them sit down on the grass, right? Mm-hmm. So we think of we think of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, 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 oh, Brady, help me out. I just lost the middle of verses. I, you know what? This is where you caught me off guard, too. So I'm going to look it up with no shame. Um you, you <laughs> that's amazing of all the things uh, you make me to lie down in green pastures is. is where okay. I was going you yep. lead me beside the still waters there you restore my soul I may have just forfeited my ordination at that point that's okay so <laughs> uh, no, that's not okay but nonetheless uh, the point is uh, you make me to lie down in green pastures look what the good shepherd is doing oh my goodness the shepherd so good. who attacks the Baptist chops his head off ruins the word what does the good shepherd do he sits his sheep down in the green grass. He sits them down in the grass. Why? So that he can see them. And he's about to do something. I mean, you know, I don't want to stretch it too far here, but here comes the life-giving water of Jesus. This is the way he works. He is about to nourish his people in an abundance so that their cup runneth over. Um, they're going to have more than they know what to do with here. Uh, it, it, is, it is truly a, a remarkable scene. So he has them sit down uh, so that he can provide for them um, his gift. And so he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and then he gives it to the disciples to distribute. Uh, I think here, I don't think it's too far afield to say uh, what we're witnessing here is sort of the foundational picture of what the ministry is. This is Jesus teaching his disciples to be faithful ministers to be apostles, frankly, because what's the role of the apostle? To take what Jesus has given them and to distribute it. This is great, Pastor Finner, and this is your job and my job, to take what the Lord Jesus has and to distribute it, to give it to his sheep, to have them sit uh, in the pew, to have them kneel at the rail, uh, and to place uh, the bread of life in their ears uh, when we preach the word, and then to place his very body and blood uh, on their lips with the bread and the wine. Uh, this is this is the work of the church. Now, when Jesus says it in terms of law, go do this, and we try and go out on our own to do it, it's, it's not going to work. We cannot do this ministry on our own. No pastor can do the ministry uh, on their own. No church member can carry the word out uh, into their homes on their own. Uh, it must be the Lord who gives you the gifts to distribute. And I love the way you start this show. Uh, the gifts are ready, ready for you. Uh, this is this is what the disciples were saying. We've received a gift from Christ, and now we can dis- distribute it. But only what Christ has to give you. Um, and so this is, this is our role as pastors. This is the role, uh, really, of the Church, is to distribute uh, what the Lord Jesus has placed into our hands to give out. And for us, we know that that's the forgiveness of sins. We know it's the promises of life and salvation. Uh, the body and blood of the Lord uh, to forgive us and sustain us. Uh, now, in this particular instance, it was fish and bread for hungry people. Um, and it's, it's not merely, not merely, uh, not only a spiritual feeding that they're getting here, but actually a physical one, too. Uh, and we're also reminded that the Lord cares for their needs.
And we can talk more about that in a second when we get to the final verses. Absolutely. I love the connection to Psalm 23. That was just wonderfully done. Puts us back to that shepherd king language as opposed to saying, go away, that we not only know that he's full of compassion, but that he is full of gifts to give to his people. And that, I mean, how can we not connect that to the gifts that he gives to us now, the, the ways that he provides? I mean, how many times in our lives have we not only seen it in our own lives, but in other people's lives that when it did not look like God would provide, he did. In our churches, at our jobs, in our lives, it's manifested in so many different ways. But yet, it's so true that God does provide. We don't want to go too far with it. Well, just put five things here, two things there, pray the right way, boom, it's going to happen. No, but we do see, like you said, the directions that he does give throughout Scripture. So let's finish off our time. Finish off our verses as we hear the, quote, rest of the story, verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let me, let me start here in verse 21. It says 5,000 men, so usually it just says feeds of 5,000. What I have always learned on this, Pastor, it was probably more than 5,000. Any thoughts? Yeah, it, it is an interesting. It's 5,000 men uh, besides women and children. So in other words, uh, the whole family, all families were there and they were eating. That. So so why bring up the 5,000? You know, I'm no expert on this stuff, um, but I am, I am leading a Bible study on Revelation right now. And obviously when you read the book of Revelation, um, numbers are, are heavily symbolic uh, in, in that book. Um, so... What might 5,000 symbolize? Because we know it's not literally 5,000. It's not, I should say it this way, it's not specifically 5,000 because it says about 5,000 men and women. So, so, so they're saying there, there are about 5,000 people there. What does 5,000 symbolize? Well, we at least know this much. 1,000 is a number that demonstrates completeness. All con- like everybody was fed uh, this. I, I I'm not sure how I can connect it to the number five, and I do apologize for that. Uh, but we notice this uh, later on that he's going to go to another place, and he's going to feed 4,000 people when he's feeding the Gentiles. There, how significant is this 4,000? Four is the number that represents the world because it represents the four winds. And the 1,000, once again, four times 1,000 would represent uh, the whole world. So in other words, all the people of the world are blessed by Jesus according to the second time this miracle takes place. In this instance, we notice, though, that he's focused in on the people of Israel. And isn't it significant, then, uh, that, that all of God's people, all of Israel, so to speak, is blessed by the coming of this Messiah? And how do we know Israel is being symbolized? Uh, because of the 12 baskets, right? 12 baskets represent the 12 tribes. When he feeds the Gentiles, he has seven baskets full, the seven baskets Seven baskets full left over uh, because seven is the number of uh, sort of completeness, the entirety of the whole creation. Um, all, all this is to say is that Jesus has come first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, and he has come for all of them. Uh, this miracle and the, the collection of the food afterwards demonstrate uh, that he has come for everyone, and he's come with an abundance of food for men, women, children. All his creation is blessed by his arrival, and he provides for them uh, what they need. And when we see this, it really is goes back to that when you mentioned 
that he is so full of compassion that he loses track of time. Obviously, God knew the time, but it just it just shows you his focus is full of compassion. And here, he's so full of, of giving that he gives too much. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, yeah. that he showers it upon them to the point where well, we need extra baskets. And, and this not only shows us 12 tribes of Israel, but shows that, 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 that he's going to send these 12 disciples out to continue to give these gifts. I mean, we could run with this every which way, but it just shows you the overflowing grace of God upon sinful people like you and me that this symbolized in bread and, 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 and fish and is obviously given to us today in his forgiveness, life, and salvation. Yeah. Other thoughts? Think about it. The Lord has more forgiveness than you have sinned. The Lord has more forgiveness for you than you have sins against him. You can't outrun him with those. He's always going to be more compassionate than you are going to be sinful. Pastor, we have about two minutes left in our time. We've, we've read this story many times. We've, we've gone through it here. There definitely is, is all the highlights we have today. How would you summarize this and why, uh, and how would you encourage people with this great story? Uh, I, so we've talked a lot about the spiritual blessings uh, that we kind of make connections with here. We're reminded of uh, very important things um, of the Lord providing us with, with his body and blood and the supper, uh, his overabundance of forgiveness, his compassion for his people. Uh, I, I also think we want to not sell short how much the Lord cares about our physical needs as well. Like these people were hungry and he fed them. We are reminded of, of God's work for his people in the wilderness, and this is another example of how uh, Jesus is demonstrating his divinity, but he's connecting himself with the God of Israel uh, in the book of Exodus. When they're, when they're wandering through the wilderness and God provides them with daily bread, they wake up and the, the bread is provided for them. Mm. Um, this is an account that reminds us that we have a God who provides us with the daily bread that we need. And so when we, when we're, <laughs> we wake up every morning, uh, we say the Lord's Prayer, praying that the Lord would give us uh, the daily bread that we need for sustenance so that we might serve in His creation well. Uh, but then we are, of course, as we said already, reminded both of those things, that He takes care of us physically and spiritually, and that His compassion for us in our need and in our sin uh, is always greater than the need and the sin. So this is the nature of your God to give you more than enough of what you need, and to, and, and to have compassion on you. This is who God is, and this is why he is a great shepherd and a great Lord, because of the compassion and the mercy he has for you and for me and for all of his people. Pastor Bob Hiller of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido and San Marcos, California, bringing us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 14. Pastor Hiller, thank you for bringing us his gifts. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've heard the story before, but as Pastor Hiller said so well, actually, I don't need to repeat it because he shows that our Lord provides. For that, we receive, and for that, we serve. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand. <laughs>